Welcome to Order Up, the restaurant operations podcast brought to you by Ops Analytica. Restaurant operations checklists are one of the most universally applied systems across all types of restaurants from fast food to fine dining. And the reason is they work. They focus our managers every shift, every day on those most important things that they need to do from a guest readiness and food safety perspective. But there's a problem. 94% of managers and owners believe that their teams are pencil whipping their checklists. And that's because they're doing them on paper. Paper sucks at holding people accountable. You don't know when they started. You don't know when they stopped. You don't know if they pencil whipped. You have to physically be in the restaurant looking at a clipboard to see if your restaurant's operating safely and your managers are following the systems that you have in place. That is no way to manage your business. Check out the Ops Analytica Inspector. Search Restaurant Checklist app. With the Ops Analytica Inspector, we're gonna digitize your checklist, we're gonna put them on the app, and you're gonna have instant visibility into how your managers are actually completing your checklist, if they're getting them done on time, if they're pencil whipping, and you're gonna be able to determine if you have any food safety or critical issues that you need to address immediately. Check us out online at opsanalytica.com. Hey, welcome to the Order Up Show. This is Tommy Yernoulis, your host for this episode, and I am uh, pleased to have on the show with me, Mr. Uh, or I should say, Chef John Frank. Welcome, John, to the Order Up Podcast. Thank you, Tommy. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. We're actually recording this the day after Christmas here. And John is the uh, corporate chef for Front Burner Restaurants, and he will uh, tell us all about that. But John, just uh, so you know, and for our listeners um, who might be, this might be the first time they're tuning in, uh, whenever we talk to somebody in the uh, restaurant industry, we always just ask the same five questions. So you get some nice continuity and you can hear the different people from around the country answer the same five questions. And, um, and the first question is explain what you do today and then take us through your career progression from sort of your first job in the industry to what you're doing today. So that will be your intro and your bio. So here you go, John. Why don't you answer that question for us? Okay, thanks. Since I like talking about myself, this might take a couple hours, but uh, just Perfect. so I'll, I'll burn through it. But uh, the, um, the, what I'm doing currently is I'm the, uh, based out of Dallas, Texas, and I'm the corporate chef for Front Burner Restaurant. Uh, we have uh, just under 100 restaurants total and about seven brands. Um, if anybody's from the Dallas area, they're more likely to have heard of us, maybe if you were from opposed to like California or the Northwest or Northeast. But um, the, the biggest brand that we have uh, right now brand we started with is Twin Peaks, and that's uh, nationwide. There's franchise and corporate stores split about 50-50, um, and they're all the way up northwest to Seattle, all the way down to uh, Florida. Um, <clears throat> northeast, the highest we go, I believe, is uh, North Carolina, but uh, in the Midwest, we're in Denver, uh, we're in Detroit, and uh, uh, we're actually in uh, Idaho. So, so we kind of span all over the place. We actually have one franchisee in Kazan, Russia, which is about a five-hour drive southeast, southwest of Moscow. So, um, and, uh, you know, I've been doing that for about eight and a half years now. I came onto the company and we just had one brand, which was Twin Peaks. We had six restaurants of those. And the goal was to grow uh, new and innovative brands um, and to be an incubator of sorts of, you know, back when we were dreaming big. Um, we dreamed that we would, you know, every year or so open a new brand that would be different and innovative and, and unique. Uh, and then maybe someday we would end up being able to, um, you know, share those brands and, and have an investment group come in. And so luckily for us, um, that process has started to happen. Um, just to list the brands quickly is um, Twin Peaks, as I mentioned. Uh, the second brand that we opened was called The Ranch at Las Colinas. We have a second location of that opening um, in North Dallas, but that particular location is in Irving, Texas, which is a, a suburb of Dallas. Um, the next brand we worked on is called Ojos Locos. It was sort of a Hispanic version of Twin Peaks. Um, we were equity partners with that and uh, operated for a while. It still exists, and it's actually um, doing very well. <laughs> the gentleman that uh, the gentleman that uh, invested in it and did the initial uh, thought process and everything have since taken it over, which is which is great. So no no bad feelings there at all. Um, it was a good deal. That's the plan. Um, then the next brand we opened was called uh, Velvet Taco. Uh, we have four locations: Dallas, Fort Worth, Chicago, and Houston. Uh, it's eclectic, ups, you know, eclectic, uh, fast, casual, um, really cool, unique. Uh, open very very late taco joint with uh, international flair and flavors. Um, from there, we opened um, 
Mexican Sugar, which is a Latin upscale Latin restaurant. We've opened uh, Ida Claire, which is a southern uh, restaurant with a twist in Addison, Texas, which all these are suburbs of Dallas, well, Mexican Sugars in Plano. Uh, and then we also have opened, uh, most recently, um, and I feel like maybe I'm forgetting one, but most recently, 60 Vines, which is also in Plano. And it is a, um, a wine-centric restaurant, uh, all wine, uh, not all, but a lot of the wines are on tap. Um, we really focus on, uh, you know, wine country cuisine. Um, and the other brand I was forgetting was Whiskey Cake. We have four locations of Whiskey Cake. We have Plano, Oklahoma City, San Antonio, and Houston. Uh, this year we're planning on opening seven more restaurants, and so we've got a lot going on. But uh, Whiskey Cake is just a, a – not just, but it's a really cool restaurant. It's four, four locations. It's gastropub um, with a real slant towards whiskey, obviously, with the name – um, what's kind of interesting about our company is you seem to sort of follow this, this motto of, you know, food with alcohol. So Twin Peaks is all about or is all about 29-degree draft beer, this huge, you know, system to keep all the beer ice cold and form an ice ring on the top of the, the, the deal. And then Ojos Locos was all about, uh, uh, you know, Mexican, Hispanic beers. And then you get into um, Velvet Taco, maybe not so much about the alcohol, but we do have a margarita there, which we're really well known for. Uh, whiskey Cake is about the whiskey. Ida Claire is about sort of this eclectic, uh, you know, beer collection and gin. And then uh, Mexican Sugar is all about tequila. Sixty Vines is all about the wine. And the Rancho Las Colinas is all about local Texas source, uh, you know, whiskeys, vodkas, um, and uh, beer. So, and then, so it's just kind of funny the way we work. But um, anyway, without any further ado, the rest of my career is pretty, pretty simple, pretty standard, I think, for a chef. Um, started off when I was 15, driving by a restaurant called Box, Stock, and Bagels. I grew up in Maryland, and uh, it was in Germantown, Maryland. I was driving, uh, riding my bike home from school and thought, you know, maybe it's time for me to get a job and walked in, became a busboy, became a dishwasher, became a cook by the age of 16. Um, one of the guys that was on the line was talking about how he was going to Johnson & Wales University, and I had never heard of it or really thought about college at that point yet, I don't think. Um, and I thought, boy, this is a good way in. I love cooking. Uh, he seems to be passionate. I don't have to take my SATs, and um sounds like a good deal. So uh, from there, I basically followed that track, you know, did the whole home ec thing, but then went to Votech school. And my senior year of high school was a complete, you know, funny joke. It was I took – you know, beginning band, symphonic band, concert band, jazz band, one English class, which is all I had left uh, in my, my second semester, and then went to Votech school. So basically, I sort of hung out uh, for the last few months. I'd already been accepted to Johnson & Wales. Um, went there, uh, went through that program really fast, uh, just doubled up on classes and tried to do what I could to get out of there <laughs> while I was there. Became a dishwasher at the Omni Hotel, downtown Providence. I worked in a little Italian restaurant, so saw a couple different ways to do things. Um, and then uh, once I graduated, I got recruited down to Dallas. And that's kind of where I've been since 1995 um, by a hotel company. It was a small hotel company called the Harvey Hotel Company based out of Dallas. They had about eight hotels at the time, I believe. Um, they eventually grew a little bit bigger, got bought out by Starwood, and then they don't exist anymore. Um, it was a great introduction into you know food service and real high production. And what I loved about working in a hotel, though I would never go back to a hotel kind of lifestyle, is that there was garbage and banquets and room service and high-end hotel and low-end hotel and all these different things going on. I'm sorry, high-end restaurant and low-end restaurant. So you could see all these different facets under one roof. Um, having been in a small little, you know, 12-table Italian restaurant, having been a dishwasher in a hotel, having been in a family-owned New York-style deli where I started, actually spent a little bit of time in a grocery store in the deli department. Um, so I, I feel like I got this really well-rounded sort of viewpoint after I left the hotel. I went to Neiman Marcus, worked downtown Dallas for about a couple of years down there. Um, so again, another facet, sort of this restaurant, very, very high-end in this retail environment. <clears throat> we opened a restaurant, a fast casual place down on the, on the ground level. You got to see that. From there, I moved to Chicago. I worked at Nick's Fish Market, which is the high-end uh, fish, fish restaurant in, uh, in Chicago. I then left there and went to Sullivan Steakhouse out in the suburbs of Chicago. Um, and then I decided I wanted to come back to Dallas. That's where I was more comfortable. There was no snow. And um, I was all about that. And so I got a job with Pappas Restaurants. And I spent about seven years there. 
um, working as the research as a research and development chef out of the Dallas area, oversaw mostly Papada, which is a Cajun seafood brand. Um, and then the second half of my time there, um, I was in Houston working out of several different brands. Um, all that sort of gets me to where I am today, which is you know being able to have a well-rounded viewpoint of all different kinds of facets from a chain restaurant viewpoint to a hotel restaurant to banquets to catering to private events, you know, whatever it is, and obviously high product, you know, high volume and stuff. So it's really put me in a good spot. So I'm really sort of pleased with the way my life sort of, you know, unfolded. And it wasn't, you know, when I was 15 riding that bike into that restaurant, I didn't say, oh, I'm going to have my progression of my career go like this. And I'm just glad that it worked out the way it did. So. But um, that's me. That's the short version. So that's <laughs> cool. That gives you some well-rounded viewpoint. So. Well, it's funny because our lives have intersected in a couple of weird spots. But so I got my start at the Jerry's Subs and Pizza in the Columbia Mall in oh, uh, Maryland, <laughs> and uh, my mom eventually moved to Gaithersburg before oh. uh, she worked for the Lockheed Martins and stuff that are off of 270, yeah, so she was yeah, one exit sure. down from you in Germantown. And, uh, wow, that's so funny. You don't really see too, meet too many people from that part of the world. So. No, no. And then I went to uh, school in Philadelphia, but then I was looking to go to hotel restaurant school, and Johnson & Wales was one of the schools that I had looked at, but I ended up going to University of Denver instead. Um, oh, cool. HRTM back in the early 90s as well. So that's just funny. Um, that's yeah, cool, that's yeah. So, so that's awesome. So that makes a lot of sense. And that's a cool career because – You've had a good mix of being on in the trenches, in the restaurants, but also at corporate. And that's what a lot of uh, chefs don't get that opportunity to do is to get to the corporate side of things. And that can be a limiting factor in your career if you don't get that good corporate experience doing something where maybe you're not in the kitchen, but you're planning menus or you're doing R&D or those things. Because those, if you really want to get like a well-rounded restaurant career, then you have to at some point make the jump to the corporate side of things and get out of ops for a while at least, right? Mm -hmm. And start to learn the other side of the business because that's yeah, where a lot of the decisions are made. So. Yeah, and I think so. And I think even if you don't get all the way to the part where like you're more an administrative person, just getting some insight into the corporate way of doing things. I know I run into a lot of chefs and do a lot of interviews and we hire a lot of people if we're growing so fast. And guys that just cannot quite wrap their mind around writing a recipe and doing a prep list and, you know, doing inventory and answering emails when they need to and writing yeah. schedules and, and keeping up with sort of the innovative things going on between hot schedules and things like decision logic. And, you know, they're just like, why can't I just like, you know, write this menu and just sell it and be done with it? It's like, well, because, you know, we're not just some little podunk place owned by a lawyer who doesn't know the difference and you're out there doing your own thing. And wondering why the place closed in two years, you know. So I think the, what's cool about our company is because we have so many what we call independent brands, you know, these brands that aren't really in this corporate structure. They really aren't, you know, they don't have front offices. I mean, everybody's kind of, you know, synonymous, uh, autonomous among themselves. But we have what we call, what I like to say, is like we have this corporate structure with this entrepreneurial mindset. So it's like inside this, you know, I tell chefs, you have a huge sandbox to play in, but you can't leave that sandbox. And so, you know, this is what I'm giving you. These are the parameters that you're allowed to work in, uh, whether that be a director of operations, a chef, a sous chef, whoever. And you can play. You can play, but you can't go outside. So a good example of that is the Rancho Las Colinas. You know, at, well, let me rephrase that. A good example is all of our brands have a DNA, a structure that we put together before we even open the doors that decides what the uniform looks like, what the feel of the restaurant is, what our focus is, what our target points are, what our bullseyes are, you know, all those little key terms. And we do not veer from that over years of, of the, the growth of these brands. And so the Rancho Las Colinas is a good example. Our target was Texas cuisine only. Texas source, Texas local, Texas farmers, ranchers. And so a guy will come in and go, well, I think it'd be cool to do salmon or it'd be cool to do tuna and do a twist. And go, no, it's not from Texas. You cannot serve an, a protein that's not from Texas. Certainly, onions aren't available year-round or salt and pepper is not from Texas. So there are caveats to that. But, yeah. you know, whiskey cake is a gastropub. I declare it's Southern. Mexican sugar is Latin. You know, uh, you know, and we have to stick within it. So I think... 
you know, understanding that, like how to work in a sandbox and then how to, uh, you know, adjust yourself to meetings or to those kind of things. And then, you know, it's hard for chefs. And then when you get to my level, it's just good that I've had some exposure. Um, One, because I can sit at a meeting or do a presentation having done that already and had my practice doing that. But on the other side, I can see where everybody's coming from and just say, you know, um, hey, you know, this is how we should do it. I'm like, yeah, I know I've done it like that in the past, or I've seen that, or this is something new and I'm learning. Um, But I'm excited about it and not be like, oh, this is just dragging me down because it's corporate. You know, it's like our corporate structure is what makes us great, what makes us grow faster, you know. So so I like it. I, I agree with you. I think it's important for everybody at some point, it's certainly chefs, to, to just in, in get themselves dug into opportunities where they're they're exposed to some of this corporate mentality, whether they like it or not, it's sort of reality. You know, I mean, everybody wants to grow. If you grow, you have to become corporate. That's it. You know, I mean, I don't know how else you grow without that. So. Well, and also, I think, well, there's two things. One, I think it's very easy to hide at the restaurant, right? Like, and, and yeah. like, because there's... And you'll see it a lot in a lot of different ways. So like our, our business is restaurant checklist and inspection. So that we have software that does that. Clients, yeah. um, to, you can prioritize doing your checklist. It's going to call you on it, right? If you don't like doing them, because, you know, there's always a fire to be put out or there's always something that is something that you need to do that you could say, well, that's more important right now than doing this because it was a fire I'm putting out or whatever. And it's the same thing with like communication at the restaurant. Like people go, everybody in our industry is so understanding of the fact that you're busy and there's people in your restaurant 365, you know, every day. And so there could be something else you were doing. And so they don't expect you to get back to them in a timely manner. But then when you see kind of, cause I worked at Quiznos corporate back when we had 4,000 plus units, uh, when we were still like, at the, we had just come off the peak of our unit count and we were starting to go down, but I was still there when it was a really large chain. And I mean, y- you realize that people are actually, Sometimes they're making dumb decisions, but a lot of times they're making decisions that made a lot of sense in the corporate atmosphere where people are talking and they don't have the pressure of running the restaurant and they're trying to actually accomplish something, whatever it might be, right? You know, like we're trying to get a food cost savings or, you know, whatever. You know, I don't know the whole story. So it's really important if you're in a corporate chain to get the corporate or at some level to kind of just see how people are thinking. It'll make your life in the restaurants so much more easy to understand how some of these decisions get made and that, you know, it's not just a bunch of idiots sitting in a conference room, but people are actually thinking about <laughs> stuff, you know, and trying to figure yeah, something out totally and trying to move because, the brand. And I agree because they have access to more information than a guy at the store level has. They're, they're the ones looking at analytics and, and why people do the, what they do. I mean, a great example yes. is we use a, a company called Marketing Vitals, and it's like they will tell us, you know, hey, we want to change the price on this, or we want to take this menu item off. And through some bizarre algorithm of, you know, of information, we get told, hey, here's what you should or should not do. And I think a lot of chefs go, well, I'm kind of done with this, so let's just move on. And, and I and I have that mentality too sometimes. I'm like, ah, oh, I just wish people didn't like it. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I just don't want to serve it anymore. And uh, you know, and, and that's fine. I think I think you're right. I think it's it's good to be. I think any chef and any restaurateur should be involved in so many different facets from dishwashing all the way up until being in a conference board, in a, in a board meeting, in a, in, a, in a conference meeting, in a boardroom. So it's important. So. Yeah, absolutely. And also it keeps you interested because this business, when yeah. you're stuck at the restaurant level, it is cranking your wheel. I mean, it, it is a very complex cranking of a wheel, but it's cranking of a wheel. And, uh, and so if you don't, and if you don't have that mindset, and I think this is actually one of my failings as a person in the industry who's, you know, working up all the different positions, but like, you know, I'm, I'm more, uh, if you're going to be a guy who's going to be really successful cranking the wheel, then you've got to get really, I believe self metrics driven so that you are managing off those percentages, whether it be customer service, whether it be uh, food costs, labor costs, uh, sales, whatever it is that you can get that, that you can control, right. In theory, that you can just mm-hmm. get like your entire staff and you, everybody focused on, we're going to make this, these numbers, however, you know, however that pertains, that's how you can keep that job really interesting over time because it's because yeah. you're never there. 
there's always perfection to be reached. I could shave another tenth of a point off my food costs if we really get great at portion control or whatever it is, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I just don't have that as part of my personality type, unfortunately. <laughs> well, not everybody does, so yeah. it's hard to zone in on it. Cool. Well, I think that was a good answer to one, so I'll check that off my list there. Uh, <laughs> what is... <laughs> What is the big project or initiative that you are working on right now? So the biggest project we have coming up, and it's you know funny that you say what's the biggest project. This this project is huge. I listed all the different restaurants we're doing, um, you know, and I say, look, over my career, here's all the things I've done, which put me in a position to be a, a, the best chef that I feel like I can be in the place that I am, and I can always grow. But in terms of being that there, being there for people. Uh, and having the right answers. It, the same thing goes with our company and, and our, you know, the, the primary people, which is our CEO and president. Um, they've had an extensive decade-long career path of restaurants, and whether that be in real estate or restaurants themselves or operations. And so the big thing we have now coming up is going to be a food hall that we're opening in North Dallas in the Plano area, or in Plano, uh, called the uh, called Legacy Food Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, in Plano, uh, in the northern part of Plano, northwestern part, uh, Toyota has moved from California to Plano, and they should be all moved in, I think, this year or into next year. Um, and then Liberty Mutual, J.C. Penney's, and a couple other larger companies have moved into that area. Um, Frito-Lay and Pepsi's already there. Uh, so there's a lot of going on in Frisco, Plano area, and there is this lifestyle, uh, lifestyle business living center um, called Legacy West, which is across the toll road from the shops at Legacy. Um, and this will have hotels, retail, restaurants, um, you name it, condos, apartments, the whole deal. Um, inside that, nestled down in the middle of that, is a 50,000-square-foot food hall that we will be uh, running and operating and managing. And so we, um, it's a European-style food hall. Um, there's some just like it. There's, I think, a couple in Denver. There's definitely a couple in Atlanta. They're in L.A., New York. Um, they're, they're starting to be quite a trendy thing to do. Um, and for those who don't know what it is, basically it's a European-style food hall. It's one big building um, with a lot of different food stalls. It's almost like having permanent mini food trucks uh, planted next to each other. So we have um, 50,000 square foot, three stories. Uh, the first floor is mainly food stalls. Um, we've got chefs from all over Dallas and restaurant tours doing things like, of course, your burgers and pizza, um, but done in a real fun, eclectic way. We'll have bao sandwiches. We have some Lebanese-style food. We have waffles. We have some breakfast items. We have um, uh, charcuterie stuff. We, I mean, you name it, we've probably got it in there. Um, that's on the first floor. Second floor will be another concept, probably seafood-related, a little bit bigger, but still fast, just still counter service a lot of seating on the third floor we're doing our own brewery at twin peaks um we have a brewery in one of our twin peaks in irving texas and we use that beer and distribute it to a lot of our different brands and so this will be an extension of that this will be um, 10 tanks up there we'll have a tap room where we'll serve food um, and then that beer will be served in the food hall not exclusively that beer but it'll be in there um there'll be five bars located throughout the food hall um, on the outside of the food hall is a beer garden, which is 500 seats and a stage um, for entertainment. Could be music, could be other things. Um, out there, we'll have a barbecue pit and a, a you know basically a stall that would be a barbecue stall, and then we'll have a tiki bar and a sort of Texas uh, Lone Star kind of not Lone Star beer, just sort of a Lone Star State kind of kind of bar themed bar, um, and I think that's it. <laughs> so, wow. uh, so it's a big, it's a big huge uh, food hall project that we feel is going to be sort of the next evolution of our company. The reason I mentioned um, our CEO and president is because them, they as well feel that, you know, as a company, we've taken all that we've learned, all the relationships that we've garnered, all the all the, the expertise that we've gotten, and we're, we're going to apply that to this food hall. Now, I am sure that we will make some errors and mistakes in the beginning. And we'll, but the great thing is that we're all always willing to say, tell us what's wrong. Like, we don't want to open a place and go, look at this, it's perfect. We want to open and go, where can we poke holes in it? And so the goal here is to open this one in North Dallas in Plano, and then from there have that be sort of the next step and, you know, and see where else in the country we would be able to put a food hall. You know, you can only put so many 
in you know in so many hundred square miles. So it's not like we could open two of these in, in Dallas. This would be it. Um, and this would be we hope to have about 4,000 people in and out of the building every day. Um, with the amount of people that are going to be in that area, uh, we feel it's a pretty good number. Uh, it's what we need to have in there, and, uh, and you know we're excited about all the different chefs coming on board. So, so my role, obviously, I'm not going to oversee uh, all 21 food stalls and create the food for them. So, we specifically, as a company, have two food stalls. One is a charcuterie bar. Um, it's a pretty simple, straightforward charcuterie and wine bar. And then on the third floor, since we're doing, so we're brewing the beer and serving it inside this uh, in this facility, I guess, this entertainment complex. Um, We'll um, we'll have a, uh, some food up there, so I'm going to just kind of oversee those, and then help. I've been helping and and being a part of the process as different chefs have come in to do tastings. And this is the, the this is the items I want to present. You know, do you have any feedback? And so I've been real uh, instrumental in doing that. So that's one huge project that we have coming. That should be opening in September uh, of 2017. Wow. Um, so so we'll see. So we have another project that we're working on, seafood concepts. Um, that will be across the tollway, actually back on the other side of Shop at Legacy um, that we're working on right now. Uh, and it's sort of fresh and vibrant, sort of casual in tone, uh, sort of slant towards specific islands and coastal seafood. And so we'll um, – so that's, that's – so that next, again, we don't, we don't have a seafood-specific brand that we serve a lot of seafood. So we're excited about this. That's not on the grand scale of 50,000 square feet. It's not diminished either. It's going to be a big project for us. Um, but both of those things are sort of happening at the same time. A month, we have two more whiskey cakes opening, one in Houston, one in uh, Dallas, in the Dallas area. We have three more Velvet Tacos this year, one in Houston, one in uh, Dallas, and one in Austin. And then we have another 60 Vines opening, uh, which is our, you know, the, the wine-centric thing down in downtown Dallas. And then um, uh, we have a second ranch at Las Colinas opening in this same complex. So the 50,000 square feet, um, actually the three stories all overlook on one side, the beer garden. And then this ranch at Las Colinas, the second version of it would be called Haywire. And it's just sort of an L to the building, uh, to, the, to the larger complex. And it's second and third floor overlook this beer garden. So we sort of, this whole complex will be quite a project for us. So, um, so it's a big deal. That's 50,000 square feet just for that um, food hall. And then there's another probably, you know, I don't know, 15 or, or so thousand square feet for the for the second ranch at Las Colinas. So, so it's, you know, it's a busy year. I'm, I'm still debating how I'm going to sleep and see my family and actually get all this done. So, I'm, I'm trying to map it out to figure that out, how I can how I can duplicate myself. But it's got a big year coming up, so a lot well, going on. And you mentioned there's one of these in Denver, and for the life of me, I can't remember the name of it right now, though I haven't eaten there, but I had, I know a ton of people in the industry that have and really love it. The one that in Denver is a food hall, and it's not nearly as big as the one you're talking about. But what they're doing, I believe, is they are – it's like it's like you're taking like a young chef who's got uh, whatever concept, and then they but they basically bring that guy into their food court, help them get their system in place, get their menu in place, and if they continue to sell well, then they get to stay there. And I believe oh, wow. that the building, I think, also the guys that own the building might actually get a percentage of the brand. So it's I think it's kind of like they're trying to. It's like I think it's truly an incubator for these restaurant systems, and so like you, they get a percentage back of the sales at yeah. some level. Is what I think. It's yeah, and some of them do that. What we've done is toured around the country, and actually, um, I haven't been, but uh, our team, a couple of people from our team, have been you know, to Amsterdam and England and and those kind of and those kind of places. And everybody's sort of doing something different. But what we've seen, sure. the tie-in is that. Most of the time, I don't know, I wouldn't say 90% or quote me on that, i just say most of the time these things are owned by real estate people. And sure. so what they're doing is they're saying, here's a space. What I'd like to do is fill this space with as much revenue stream as possible. And so why don't we just bring, why don't we bring people in and we will lease the space. What has not been taken into account is who takes out the trash, uh, where do you store everything, how does your labor work, how does the POS tie in together. And so what we've tried to do is, is take you know, the mistakes that we see are potentially happening in these other food halls, the things that people, you know, it's like sort of you're the first to market. You're always going to be 
you know, yeah. the, you know, you're not necessarily going to be the best because you were the first. And so we've gone around and, and taken the taken that opportunity to see what are some things that we we love that we see, what are some things that we don't like that we see. And so what we've tried to do is um, first and foremost in regards to the chef is we get zero percentage of their business. You know, now obviously they they have to pay rent and they have to you know pay like for HVAC and heat and those kind of things, right? So I mean that that's just part of doing business. But, you know, they decide to grow this brand. We look at ourselves as an incubator for them. So we're sort of the sure. shell, and we'd like them to come in and take something. Whether Some of these chefs coming in are already established chefs, and they already have things. This is sort of a fun project for them. Other people are coming in. This is their first set. And so sure. then this is an opportunity for them to grow. So we see sort of a good mix of people that are strong restaurateurs, people that are strong creatively. And, you know, our, our belief is that it'll it'll work out and, and be a great place for people to come visit and see and be a part of and eat. And the idea, just like any food hall, is that you, myself, and a couple of people go in and say, hey, I want to get some waffles. Hey, I want to get some noodles. Hey, I, you know, so-and-so wants to get some bao sandwiches. Hey, so-and-so wants to get pizza. And let's all get it and let's meet back, you know, at this table. And we can all just hang out and, you know, be millennials, you know, and <laughs> pretend to be millennials. And, uh, and then let's look at our phones. Yes. Yes, I'm not four, I'm 43. But, you know, take pictures of the food. Talk about it, eat it, go back, and, uh, and you know. So each of the stalls will have somewhere between five and seven menu items, probably between nine and twelve dollars per item. And so you really do sort of, and we do envision this thing where you know mm-hmm. people are coming in, and spending a good amount of time visiting each stall, learning about what the food is, and then the POS is tied in together. Um, you know, we even talked about not even having cashiers if at some point where, you know, you can just basically order, um, you know, if you know what you what you want, if you need mm-hmm. to have questions, there'd be somebody there to help you. But, um, you know, they're small. They're 300 square feet each. So, I mean, this isn't, you know, these massive things. So it's, it's small. It's perfect little size for somebody that's just, knocking out five menu items that are interesting and unique. Nobody crosses over. So if one guy has the burger, nobody else can have a burger. If somebody has, you know, a, a bowl of chicken soup, even though it's a horrible example, because I don't think anybody would, but, you know, nobody else can have that. So and we have a barbecue stall. So there won't be somebody with barbecue on the outside, somebody with barbecue on the inside. So we're excited about that opportunity. To how do you fit all that? How do you keep everybody from crossing over each other? So that's the new and it's smart too to have uh the same register system going throughout because i think you know i, I think so you guys are going to provide the infrastructure too so you're saying hey yeah. you gotta you're even though you might use aloha at your other restaurant here you're using whatever posi or rebel or whatever you're choosing yeah, so this it is so happens that we we do use aloha but yes yeah, so you, you don't yeah. come in and go hey this is what i'm used to using so i want squirrel or the, or you know or micros, yeah whatever, yeah. Micros or whatever. It's Aloha, and then it's all tied in. The reason that it's all tied in is it allows us to have control. And actually, we have no cash at all except in the bars. And uh-huh. We run the bars. We have to all the all the alcohol based on the Texas Alcohol Bureau rules, um, or oh, was Texas, TABC is what we call it. But um, you know, everybody can't serve alcohol. That everybody's walking around with the alcohol from all these different yeah. places. Too much. So we brew this, brew the beer, some beer, and we serve all the alcohol. So all the alcohol is, is provided by us. Uh, so you can go to the booth, get a non-alcoholic beverage or whatever, and install it, and then go back to the bar. Um, but yes, we we want to have the POS system all draw through us because we are taking another great thing that we're doing. Instead of having all these little, these smaller. Uh, new restaurant tours try to do credit applications and try to get sure. you know Cisco some of these broadliners some of these larger produce companies and seafood companies to accept them and be billing. We're going to handle all that. So they can call, they can order, and then the, we will get billed for it. So we are the responsible party. And then through their POS system, we basically just charge them each day. So hey, you bought five hundred dollars worth from Cisco. Here's well, here's five hundred dollars. You know, right out of your account. So. If they don't have to deal with invoicing, we even will, will handle payroll for them if they choose. Um, we will provide insurance for them if they choose to use it. We won't our insurance, but it's not we're not paying for the insurance, but it's provided yeah. as a service. Um, and so a lot of great things are sort of tied into this to allow people not to worry about all the nitty gritty that they yeah. to worry about and be stressed out about. Um, you know, your the stall will come with hoods. It'll come with electric and gas connections. 
Uh, we will service those hoods. We will clean those hoods. We will do pest control. We will do, you know, um, we'll take care of the chemicals. You get what you need to clean. Um, and so it's sort of a, a restaurant within a restaurant, right? So, it's, you know, if you were to come in and do a pop-up one day and, like, help out somewhere or do some sort of wine dinner, you wouldn't have to worry about all those things. And that's kind of the way we look at it. And this is a long-term thing. And so, you know, the leases aren't even leases. They're licensing agreements. And um, so it's a, it's a really new way to do things and to not make people feel like they're getting taken advantage of or they're being alienated or somebody's doing something funny and, you know, oh, these guys don't understand me. They're real estate people. You know, we're restaurant people. So we understand exactly what it takes to run a restaurant. And, and all the stressors and everything. And so this will really take a lot of that load off. So, so that's what we're hoping it to be. It, it, you know, it, in terms of our company, we're trying to be innovative and unique in everything that we do. And this is the next step in that as well. So, so is there a gigantic commissary kitchen somewhere where people can go do their prep or are they going to prep in the stalls? And then where are their nope, walk-ins? They prep in their stalls um, and they can just walk out in the midst. There's not like a back hallway mm-hmm. where they kind of go from stall to stall. Um, it's just, you're backed up against the wall, and so, um, and you know, not not figuratively, but like literally, your your booth is your stall is up against the wall. So, if if you needed to get trash out of there, we'll have a, a guy come around with trash. We'll have those kind of things. The only central thing that we have is a dish pit, and so if you wanted to, um, you know, bring pots and pans and stuff, everybody will have three compartment sinks in their deal. Uh, in their stall, but they can bring the you know some larger things if they just want to knock everything out at once. Um, and everything is be served in some sort of eco-friendly paper type stuff. So it's not like there's yeah. you know uh, plateware and glassware and all these things. Even though one or two of the bars might have glassware, but that's kind of what the dish fit is for. It's for the bars, and it'll be for anybody that wants to use it. It'll be manned and staff. Then they each have an extra storage unit. Um, that can have electric running to it. So you could have a refrigerator in there. You could have, um, it wouldn't cook in there. So basically refrigeration or freezer if you needed it. And then storage would be in there. So, uh, and then we kind of handle a lot of the dry, um, not the dry goods, the paper goods. And so we'll have that stored somewhere um, within that facility. And so you would sort of requisition uh, paper goods. So, so, you know, all these guys aren't having to sit on boxes upon boxes upon boxes of stuff. So, Sure. Uh, but so, and, and I'm sure, you know, we, we open in a year and somebody will go, there's not enough space. <laughs> you know, yeah. so, but, uh, you know, it's, it's about getting creative with the space that you have. And, uh, but that's kind of how it works. No commissary. We, we've been to a couple where they did do a commissary kitchen. And the biggest complaint from the, from the chefs is it's just, you, you can't, it's a great idea on paper, but then when you get in there to work, like everybody's tripping on each other, you sure. know, and everybody's got their own pots and pans and, and spoons and then they lose stuff and, you know, who cleans up? And I went into one in New Orleans and it was like, it's crazy. I mean, like nobody cleaned the fryer, nobody cleaned the sauté burners. They didn't want to be responsible for it. So sure. it was just like, if you want to use the fryer, you had to kind of dump it out and, yeah. you know, put your own oil in there. And it's just, that just didn't seem right. So we just thought, you know what, you have your own little, area do what you want with it and go from there yeah and if you have five to seven items on your menu and you're smart about them then you'll minimize the prep time you know oh, or of the, course yeah. and then you know you'll just have yeah that's really cool that's that now i got to come down well we were supposed to go to dallas for christmas this year but we didn't so next year i'll have to try to get down there because i want to check this place out yeah um, you come down look me up i mean <laughs> reach out to me not look me up but reach out to me before you come and i'll make sure you see all the different brands That'd be awesome. Uh, Okay, so let's move on to the next question. What is the one thing in the industry or your business that's keeping you up at night? Like, what's Um, what's bothering? Probably this is probably a question that most people would I would say agree with is staffing right now. Sort of the cliche thing to say, but um, you know we have definitely noticed it. And I will say in North Dallas uh, specifically, DFW actually, all of Dallas Fort Worth maybe, but specifically North Dallas. Um, there is a huge influx of restaurants and a huge influx of high-income people um, and a not influ- influx of people that would be working in your restaurants. Um, guys that are making, you know, $200,000, $300,000 a year are there with their families. The guys that want to make 10 or 11 or 12 bucks an hour are not there. Um, and so we are not hurting, um, but it is not like it used to be. I mean, I remember turning people away, and now it's kind of like, well... If you can wash dishes, uh, you know, we'll see. And and even the demographic of the cooks has has changed dramatically where you can be more specific towards 
you know, Hispanics, and it was just kind of like these were kind of the guys that worked in the kitchen. Um, and what we've seen more and more is younger kids that are interested in culinary school um, coming in, um, English speaking, obviously. And um, so it's just different. And that's not a bad thing, uh, but just a different thing. And so it's just it's, what it's done is it's forced our chefs and our general managers to really start to look at things differently and understand that, you know, patience is a virtue. Um, a guy that, you know, has, has worked from fry cook to saute to grill all over town and bounces here and there for an extra 50 cents or a dollar um, is not bouncing as much anymore. And what's coming in are people that have never held a knife and never really sure. been part of such a big high-volume experience and, you know, need real clear explanations on how to follow a recipe. Or, you know, if you say, hey, go ship it on this or, hey, go dice that or, hey, can you go ball that up or bake that or cook that, it doesn't always take as much explanation as it does now. And so it's not that we're running out of staff. It's that the staff is changing dramatically and quickly, uh, in my experience. I'm not saying I can't speak for the rest of the country. Um, and then the other thing, which is sort of re is basically related, is the large number of restaurants in our, you know, Metroplex that are opening. Um, and so what's happening is, is the staff – is running lower, and the restaurants are opening more, and it's, it's a recipe for some long wait lines and some long ticket times um, if we're not careful. So what we've done is made a really hard court press effort to make every employee, no matter where you're from, no matter what your level of expertise or non-expertise is, is want, give them a a desire and a wanting or willingness to stay on board. Like, why would you leave for 50 cents more when we give you this? Why would you leave sure. for a dollar more when we can offer you this? Or if you're going to leave 50 cents more, why don't you communicate that with us and we will do what we need to to try to keep you on board. So that doesn't mean we're paying everybody 16, 17 bucks an hour. It means that we're trying to give them a fun environment to work in, a place that's not over the top. We don't yell and scream and cuss mm -hmm. and, and piss and moan at everybody. You know, I mean, we just really try to, you know, we're not like, hey, everybody, kumbaya, don't worry about it. Food can be dumpy and take forever. We're like, you know, but we want to do it in, a, in, a, in an environment that they're proud of, that they, they want to succeed in, they want to see good things for the restaurants and for themselves. Um, and so we feel like we've done that. I'm, I, I sound sugar-coated. You go to a restaurant today, there might be three guys that, you know, quit, and so we're not perfect, mm -hmm. um, but th that is a concern of mine, um, that staffing and opening a lot of restaurants, and the flip side of that is, there's a lot of restaurants opening, and it feels like there's a heck of a lot of restaurants getting ready to close this year, yeah. so um, so that's that's one thing that doesn't concern me, uh, but um, because I feel very confident in what we're doing, but it's interesting to see, now a lot of chain restaurants and some other independents are starting to, you know, realized there was too much to the marketplace at once. So I don't know that's happening in Denver and all the other places in the country, but um, it's definitely an issue. So. Well, I think, yeah, so staffing has mostly the minimum wages come up on this uh, podcast a lot, but you're in Texas, which is a very conservative state. I don't think that you guys are, yeah, we are don't, we don't going to 15. Same rule. Yeah. yeah. No, no, but, no, no, uh, we're not. Yeah, so we're different. But there's been a back of the house crisis too, and there was a lot of like there was a lot of uh, arguing going on online, and I was part of it with because uh, <laughs> we were blogging a ton towards the beginning of last year, and uh, about the minimum wage and cook shortages and cooks not getting enough pay and all that kind of stuff around the country. So that those staffing's been coming up. I, I can tell you that I I manage at one of the busiest PF Changs in the country in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, actually. Um, mm -hmm. and it was, that was our biggest, uh, was the battle that was 2001. That was the biggest battle then. And it is today is, you know, you, you got to train these guys and, and get them built up, but you got to have, I think too, so often, why do people leave a restaurant? And I think it's consistency of management and consistency of system. A lot it was one of the big drivers because you get like a dirtbag manager in there who yells at everybody and is unorganized and and mm -hmm. all of a sudden operations start to fall and then the then the front of the house staff starts to go or you get a crazy chef in the back who's burning people with spoons and yelling and you know and all of a yeah. sudden people don't want to be there anymore because generally if you pay people well and they enjoy their job and you take good care of them they'll want to stay the bulk of them will want to stay you know. 
But then as soon as yeah. you get a bad player in there who starts making it miserable, I mean, the thing about our industry, which is good and bad, is that I can literally walk out of your restaurant, quit on the spot, walk across the street or the hall in the mall and get hired by your competitor. And so yeah, we, we, so it's like they have so much freedom to bolt when they want to, you know, so you got to really take care of them, but you also have to hold them to a high standard. Um, I feel like that we do that. I, I, I tell the chefs all the time that like, look, you know, a kid that has no parents, it, it doesn't make that kid happier. Like he wants to have structure. A yeah. child wants to have it. A, a person wants to have it in their life. They, people like to have bosses. They like to have people holding them accountable if they want to get better. Now there's certainly a, a, a portion of people in the world that have want no accountability at all. And that's fine. Yeah. That's their thing. Those aren't people we want, but we want people like, I feel like I am very, adamant that if, if I'm a cook and I work in a clean environment that's organized, system-oriented, that uh, the ticket printers work, that people are treating me with respect, that you know, there's plenty of brooms and squeegees and brushes, and there's plenty of chemicals, and there's always towels, and there's always aprons, and you know, my uniforms, if, if my hat gets dirty, somebody gives me a new one, they, they know my name. They know my, you know, my schedule gets posted a week beforehand. Like all these things that are just system oriented. You don't have to talk to anybody, and you could have all those things. And cooks will stay. And yeah. but when I watch these kitchens where like people come in and they're like, like it's just dirty and run down and nobody cares. They don't want to be part of that. They want to be proud of something and they want to have. And it seems simple, like just give me some towels. Like they, they hate when people go, oh, you can only have three towels for the night, and that's it. And it makes it's like. Really? Like, why? Like, yeah. why? Yeah, I don't understand that. You know, it's like five plates break, and that could have been a huge bundle of towels. So why are you not upset about that, but you're upset about towels? Like, I don't, I don't get that philosophy. So, so I feel like that's something we always try to do is say, you know, just give them a reason, respect them, understand when their first day of work, talk to them, learn their name, put them on the schedule, show them where to punch in, show them a training manual, set them up with the right person to train them. That's, that, that starts you off in the right foot. Mm -hmm. And then the people, the, these people, men or women, will have a reason, more of a reason to stay. It's not a guarantee, but it's less of a reason to go, that's for sure. So, well, so I think staffing's an issue, but you know, yeah. they treat them. So. Well, it's also, too, you just described a good, well-run restaurant versus a crap restaurant. <laughs> just yeah. FYI. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. because how many of the restaurants in the country are actually well-run? Even we're talking big franchisee, you know, big chains, too. I mean, you know, we're a systems-operated business. And, like, yeah, like, why are you skipping on towels? Like, there's so many things that you can do to control costs. Towels aren't one of them. You know what I mean? Like, that's stupid do a prime do a prime protein inventory every day and you'll save more than your neon towels uh, what, what is the one thing that you thought the industry would be doing right now that it isn't um you know i really thought about this question for a while and i think the thing that's sort of surprising me is watching some of these casual chains sort of die at the wayside and i've, I've been surprised um, having, as we talked about earlier, having been involved or am involved with the corporate side of things and, and how to, you know, find analytics to make things better and how to find information and how to, you know, using the internet, using various forms of, you know, social media is kind of the wrong thing, but, you know, various forms of technology to get yeah. to get better. And it's just been interesting to me to watch these casual chains not jump on board um, with certain innovative changes that are happening in technology, they're all over. But it's like, what about the food trends? What about what people want? What about what people need? And it just seems like, and I hate to use the millennials as a as a term, but it's like it just seems like the the mass amount of people that are moving towards and being driven towards innovation, independence, locally sourced. Uh, you know, technologically savvy, uh, good flavors, of course, fresh, open kitchens, that these chains have not caught up to that. And, and I think the problem is, is that their processes are just so long to get from point A to point B, to get one menu item changed or a plateware changed or a system changed, you've got to get an entire restaurant renovated, that they are just behind the times. And I am no prediction person, but I am telling you this year, I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of big closing 
just because it's just it's time. It's time for the independent guys. To, it's time for the cream to rise to the top. And we went through this about, I don't know, what, eight years ago or so and started to see a lot of people close, and there's a lot of real estate on the market. And it's kind of the same thing. And I could be wrong, but I just feel like that's been the, big, the funniest thing to walk in. I've got four kids. You know, I'm not – I'm not past going to Applebee's. I haven't been there in years. But, you know, it's like I took my kids to Chili the other day because they just wanted to go there. I'm like, that's fine. I don't want to, but that's fine. And just sitting there going, like, seriously, like, chocolate lava cake? Like, come on. Like, you can, you've got to be better than this. You know, like, there's so many more things. And I'm not saying everybody should be innovative and different. And, and you know, I mean, the, the people like some of their the structure that they've got and people who eat there want to have that. But um, I try to expose my kids to all kinds of different restaurants. So we have lots of fun stuff and we go out and we have interesting, unique meals and, you know, they get into it every now and then they just want something normal and that's fine. But, uh, yeah, it's, just, it's interesting. It's just interesting to see the independent guys coming up and, and making the right decisions and some of them are making horrible decisions, but making the right decisions and then these chains, um, you know, the big chains just don't seem to be able to keep up with it. But, you know, they, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but. That's kind of what I'm noticing. So, so my my buddy, uh, he was on one of the first podcasts. I think he might have been the first one. His name's John Lewis, and you can listen to his podcast too. But you should check him out because he worked at Heinz, and then he worked at Wendy's, and now he's got his own thing. And he he was saying in his in, in our interview, um, you know, he's amazed that even at the biggest chains level how people just they don't use any of the data analytics and the metrics and all of those things to like he was like just to like come up with a new idea like they just go hey how about a pretzel bun burger instead of going <laughs> what do people actually want right and like so his whole business is doing exactly what you just kind of said is he starts off with a hey what meal period are you trying like what occasion are you trying to get people to eat at and and what are the the tastes right now that people are craving like you know you're hearing a lot of sriracha now there's sriracha yeah. mayonnaise and all that stuff and then going okay and then what is where do we have like an excess of a protein so like we've got way more chicken thighs right now for whatever reason right so let's go get a, a sriracha chicken thigh sandwich you know and and he backs in with the data and then comes up with the idea versus just having a bunch of guys going, you know, I really like broccoli and cheddar and I don't see why you, we shouldn't make that a big deal this year. So it's interesting, yeah. but his big point was what the hell are these guys doing? Like this is a multi billion dollar company and they're just like, you know, well, duh, let's just pick this, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because that's something that we're working on this year um, is all these different innovative brands we have. And then we have Twin Peaks which is innovative in its own way, uh, but needs, it always could need some, you know, caressing and needs some, some better ideas, and it's 70-some-odd units, so it's, it's not as easy as I could, I could get off the phone with you, make a phone call to somebody and go, hey, let's not serve that anymore, or yeah. let's do this. It, it depends on the brand. I mean, if it's a singular brand, I can take it off without any problem, but we get into multiple units, like whiskey cake is all the time. It's a little different, but the point is, is that, you know, we could say, let's change the plateware, let's change the linen, let's change this, let's change that, let's change the way the line's set up. So it makes a different story. But anyway, so we have all these innovative, cool chefs that are so in tune with what, what, the, what is going on, what is the trend, and we have all these awesome menu items. And so what we're going to start doing is taking a look, not, not taking a menu item from a restaurant and just dumping it into a piece, but what is it, it is in the, what's the philosophy of that menu item? What is it that people are liking about it? And how can we make it into something new that can be rolled out to 70 stores nationwide um, instead of doing what you just said, which is one of the processes we live through of, hey, here's some great ideas based on some information that we're getting. Let's just throw that out there and let's have them pick. Let's, you know, have these, this random, you know, set of people pick, you know, the top three items out of these. 20. And I'm like, all you're doing is telling them to pick the best of the worst. Like, I mean, it's like, you didn't give them anything. So it's like, okay, we're stuck with quesadillas and this and that. I'm like, come on. Like, there's got to be something more innovative than that. And so that's why we're changing gears now to say, look, let's, let's really like use some of these, you know, these think tanks, which are these independent brands that we have, and let's get them some nationwide exposure through some of these items. So um, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's, that's kind of what we're trying to do. And, um, 
you know, Sriracha, it's funny, you know, we had Sriracha on something, and I was driving up to Oklahoma City to a whiskey cake up there, and I stopped at a gas station to go to the bathroom or something, and there's a sign out front that said, Sriracha Whoopie Pie is now available. And so I called the chef from whiskey cake, I said, we're taking Sriracha out of our restaurant today. I was like, I am done. Like, it is, it is finally reached its, its unbearableness. It's in Whoopie Pies and a gas station, so I'm done. So it's out of our restaurant. But, uh, you know, it's just, and now we're using like a local sort of sriracha style sauce that goes in our ramen bowl. But, it, you know, it's just, I was like, I can't do it. You know, and some things do that. They just sort of go through this, this huge, you know, way, this whole thing, you know, where it's like it just, it moves its way up to, you know, I saw Wendy's now has that chicken, sriracha chicken sandwich. It's like, you know, Wendy's on it and then, you know, Subway's got it and this person's got it. It's like, okay, that's fine. That's good. They're, they're listening. You know, it's like they're taking the stuff that we've been doing they're now applying it. Great, good for that. Now let's find the next thing, and let's you know when that when that gets played out, then we'll find something else. You know, so but uh, you know it's the death of an item when it's in a whoopie pie. So I was like, I'm out. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> By the way, if you're going north of Oklahoma City, there it's about an hour north of Oklahoma City. There is a fried pie place that if you need like another concept. You need to go steal this lady's fried pies because huh. they are phenomenal. Cool. They, she does meat pies and like apple pies and peach pies. Oh, oh awesome. awesome. So good. Yeah, our desserts at the ranch at Las Colinas are all Texas-based, so they have to be either something you eat on your grandmother's porch in East Texas or something that would be in a gas station on Route 66, not a Mookie Pie, by the way, but um, with sriracha. But, so we have like uh, cinnamon roll, crusty pecan pie stuff, but... One of the things is uh, fried pies. We do puff pastry dough. We do different oh. things each each month. But um, yeah, it took total inspiration not from that specific restaurant, but from the idea of a, a road trip. You know, what what desserts would you buy on a road trip that when sure. you pull into somewhere? So and funny, we actually used to have whoopie pies uh, on our menu. But and I got no problem with whoopie pies. I just have a problem with sriracha being in, in a gas <laughs> Well, yeah, when I when I decide I don't care anymore, I'm gonna be eating a lot of more fried pies. But yeah, I'm not there. Yet. <laughs> uh, okay, so we're to the fifth question. Uh, recount the funniest thing that like a funny story from your career could be anything. Could be a horrible experience that you look back on and laugh <laughs> at now. But let's hear a funny horrible thing. Yeah, I think um, there's so many stories. If you had somebody else on the line that could tell you stories about me and the, the ridiculous things I've said or done in the heat of the moment, uh, whether that be kicking a trash can or, you know, kicking something. And, you know, it's not funny at the moment, but uh, it's always sort of funny to look back on. And uh, so uh, one particular thing I was trying to think, like, what was one? And I sort of find it, I found it funny at the moment, and I found it funny afterwards, where some of these stories, I'm like, that wasn't so funny at the moment. Um, but uh, I was in Russia, and I was doing, I, was, I went there to help open the Twin Peaks, the franchise store that was out there and we were there for about two weeks and um it's the only international um uh, location that we have and you know they did a great job they had a chef they had hired a young kid and um i had myself and then one other trainer that used to work with us at twin peaks and since i had created the menu i you know was sort of the one that could change things on the fly um, I went out there, and, and part of the process was to approve or disapprove any of the items that they got that were subbed items, you know, based on what they could or couldn't get. Um, sure. So I had to create, you know, different dressings from scratch, which is not a big deal, but, you know, for Twin Peaks, it was kind of a big deal. Most of our dressings are made from scratch, but things like ranch dressing, like they don't have ranch packets, you know, so I had to sort of drum up this version of ranch and, and do some other things and help them do some of the process. Well, anyway, during the training, one of the things we do with any restaurant opening, I'm sure everybody's the same, is you start, you know, in one section and you teach everybody a couple items and then you let them make those items and you come back to them. And um, We had changed the dinner salad. It was, it's a simple dinner salad in, in the United States. It's lettuce and tomatoes and cheese and some cabbage. I mean, it's a ridiculous thing, right? It's just a little salad. In Russia, they wanted something that gets supposedly it's a big deal to have salads and more kind of interesting salads and then soup. That's like the big thing. And so we had changed the salad, and I did not tell the back-of-the-house trainer that was with me um, that we had changed it. I, I figured when we get to that line procedure, I'll, I'll tell him. But I had already worked on it with the chef in Russia when he was in the States, and no big deal. It was just – it was better, uh, and it was cool. 
And so we're training. I'm sitting over there with a group of guys, and I've got a translator with me. He's got a translator with him. And we're talking, you know, and it's really not any different than opening a restaurant here because I don't speak perfect Spanish. So it's like you're kind of walking your way through it and, you know, visualizing it. And then I, I noticed that he's over there training, and he had five guys with him, and he had five dinner salads lined up. And I was like, I was like, oh, man. I was like, Mike, those are – that's the wrong salad. I'm sorry. You know, I'll give me a second. I'll come over there. You flip to the page that has the salad on it. I'll walk you through it. And I go, just throw those salads away. That's fine. We'll start over. And in openings, if you've been in the restaurant business a long time, you know you just throw a lot of food away. That's just life. And that's just what happens. And so I go back to doing what I'm doing, and I'm just this kind of chef that once in a while, and probably more so than I should be, just flip, just this light switch just flips. And I just like see something that just drives me crazy. And I just don't like when cooks are eating. You know, it's like I sure. think they should throw it away. We'll eat, we'll eat later. So I look over, and I notice that five guys are eating five salads. And, I again, I've got a translator. We just kind of have to visualize this. Like, I'm speaking in English. And I'm this big guy, like six foot, six feet tall. Got my claws on him, like six one, six two. I've got this little teeny, like 4'11", tiny little Russian girl translator. And she's keeping up with me really, really good during the whole thing. She's one of those really good translators, like talking while you're talking. And I look over and I'm like, what the hell? I'm like, drop the freaking down, put them down, put them down. And the, the four of the five guys sort of pick up on, have no idea what this guy's saying, but he looks really angry and he's pointing <laughs> at the salad. So it must have something to do with this. And those salads kind of drop. And this other guy is still eating his salad. I'm like, Put the freaking salad down. And she's yelling in Russian, like, you know, like, like trying to get this. So finally, I'm like, you put that salad down. I'm going to stuff it in your face or something like something silly like that. And yeah. so she says this, and all of a sudden, like, it's just this time delay of, like, here I am. Like, this probably happened in, like, three seconds. But here I am, like, three seconds into this conversation. I'm telling this guy, screaming at him to drop the salad, to put it down, not to eat the food. And she's behind me three seconds. And so he doesn't spit out the salad until after I'm sort of like, everybody's sort of staring at him like, didn't you understand what this guy said? And it was just kind of funny the way it played out. I was like, put the salad down. And then like there's three second delay and you hear, and he's like, and he like spits the salad out. And I was like, God, what is wrong with you guys? And so we had to like go through this thing like, okay, okay, listen, I'll calm down now. Just don't eat the food. And then they're like, oh gosh, this chef is crazy. He's from the United States. We've heard so many stories. Blah, blah, blah. And, uh, but uh so anyways, that was like one of those funny things. Like just two seconds later, we're like, you know, patting the guy on the back. I'm like, hey, man, that was really actually pretty funny. You know, it's like, yeah. so, but, uh, you know, they didn't, they didn't understand anything other than I am just screaming, you know. <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of stories like that. But that, that one particular one was, was pretty funny. So I thought it was, you know, worth sharing. But uh, hard to relate to the, you know, how Russia works and stuff. And then they couldn't understand, like, I don't understand why you're not letting the bus boys eat. Like, you know, and I'm like, because it's not what we do. You know, not, and then, of course, getting a cultural discussion about, you know, well, they really don't make that much money and they don't eat much at home, so maybe we should feed them. I'm like, oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. But just don't do it on my time. That's all. But, but, uh, that's, anyway, so that's my, that's my funny antidote for the day. So. That's funny. Yeah, I've never experienced that before, so that's that's crazy. Because I mean, with Spanish, most of the time, if you're uh, an American working in a lot of restaurant kitchens, you get at least a what I call kitchen Spanish, right, where you can at least yeah, communicate with the guys. And so, but yeah, a completely yeah. different language. Like, and Russian's not easy. So yeah, totally no, understand no, no. that. It was it was interesting. Like we're pulling food. You know, I knew what the food was supposed to look like, but then once we started sort of the tickets and stuff, uh, it, people are like, how did you do that as your ex? So I'm like, well, it's really interesting, and I really got insight into a guy that maybe is, is from Mexico or from South America that doesn't read, and I'm like, yeah. how in the world is he doing this? And I figured it out. It was like, you know, meatloaf, and said twin pizza, like meatloaf, chicken fried steak. Uh, I don't know if we did chicken fried steak, but like meatloaf, there's chicken sandwich, there's a burger, there's wings, and there's like there would be one letter that maybe was sideways or upside down or backwards or that I recognized as sure. oh that's mozzarella sticks or that's trout or that's you know chicken or that's whatever and I would just you know be like okay I know what I have and it, it was it, I picked it up pretty pretty quick within like a shift you know and because you see the same thing you see the same thirty symbols over and over and over again yeah. it was just really interesting I was like oh now I get it you know it's like this guy can just look at a ticket and no idea what it says, but knows that that symbol means this item. 
Um, so it was pretty pretty cool. I, I thought it was sort of a, a great experience anyway, just to go out there and do something like that. You know what it's like? It's like sight words for your kids. They can't yeah. read, but they learn, oh, you know, this is a ball. Okay, cool. Uh, like flashcards. Exactly the same thing. Yep, yep. So I felt like a child once in a while out there. So I was a minority, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, so, John, thank you so much for being on. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug or pitch to about what you guys are doing? Um, no, you know, the, the biggest thing I think is just to – uh, anybody that comes to Dallas, um, you know, just to really take a look at our restaurants and uh, and the food hall is the big one um, worth taking a look at. And, uh, you know, just you can't find us on a website. And so each brand has its own unique uh, thing that it does. But, um, you know, but uh, anyway, no, I don't have really anything other than a pitch other than, you know, come to Dallas, come see us and, um, you know, take a look at what we're doing because it's pretty special. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, and uh, to all of our Order Up listeners, uh, we've got a lot of great interviews coming up. Uh, and so just thank you guys for listening to the podcast and take care.